This show is sponsored by Electronium. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Hey everyone, I'm Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and hopefully watching Untold Stories, where twice a week I get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, and honestly, some of the coolest and craziest people I I ever met, including my guest today, and really like figure out how this movement came to be. And now with the prices of everything just skyrocketing as fast as we can, faster than we can check Coin Market Cap or Coin Gecko, whatever you use. Now that that's all happening, we kind of really need to know like where are we going from here. Uh, so if you listen to the show, if you've been listening to the show, you know, and you have a better idea of, of what to do. And um, I wouldn't be here today. The show wouldn't be anywhere without my friends at the Blockworks Group, a media production company that I trust completely, completely. They have over 20 podcasts uh, in their network, including the podcast of my friends. So check them out at blockworksgroup.io. And with that, Chris Berniski, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Charlie. It's a privilege to be on with a Bitcoin and crypto OG. Yeah, it's awesome to to have you because um, I want to poke your brain on a lot of uh, the things that have been going on. Uh, and it's crazy that you call me an OG because I kind of look at you as an OG. And the other day I learned that OG doesn't just stand for like original gangster, which I, I guess I grew up in in Brooklyn. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> but it, it stands for like old guard. So I kind of ah. look at that. Yeah, right. So I kind of look at certain people. Everyone I've talked to on this show, I would consider an OG because if you're coming on this show then myself and the listeners consider you guys like, you know, you guys and you girls guards of this industry. Uh, I mean, that's kind of how I look at it. What do you think about that? Well, I learned something today, and I guess that says something about our generation thinking of it as original gangster and not old guard. Um, so that's that term neat. existed before. Yeah, I, don't I, know. I, I think it's, it's interesting because crypto can be very time focused, right? So like, even though I explored, um, like I got sucked into exploring the Silk Road with friends in college in 2012, um, and that was neat and that was exhilarating. I didn't really dive into the industry until 2014, and at that time, to me, you know, you were the established one, right? Huh. Um, you were yeah. the one where where there were um, stories or you were appearing at at things. Um, and so I think it it really just depends because crypto so focuses on um, when did you enter? It's kind of like seared into us. It's like you know a four year old, a five year old, and a six year old. The six year old's like I'm the old, I'm the oldest, um, and the four year old is just looking up at the six year old. So I think a lot of that gets um, ingrained in our in our brains, and then you know regardless of how much we grow or how established we become. I would say we always remember, at least I do, um, like who taught us things, who was innovating early. So like, you know, really looking up to Andreas um, or I even remember Adam Ludwin when he was at yeah. Chain um, and like how he thought about blockchains more abstractly early. And now that the space has grown so much more, um, you know, there's a lot more people, but it certain characters from the very early days stick out in my mind as OGs and you're definitely one. Thank you. Um, I guess I agree. I agree with that. And so a lot of people, though, uh, that you mentioned that were around in the early days have are not still like with us, like they've passed away. Some of them have passed away. I, I'm thinking of a few people, but a lot of them have like kind of like Satoshi have, have moved on to other things. And I remember reading early on, uh, maybe it was like 
not early on, honestly, maybe it was like 2013 or 2014. I remember reading that quote again by Satoshi saying like, I'm moving on to other things. And mm. back then I, I was like, I, I can't, how crazy is this person or people to not even just like watch from a distance. Right. Mm. And, but now that I think about it, when Satoshi wrote that, he was already like three, four years deep into this because he was talking about Bitcoin as early as 2008. He was, he was releasing bits of code. He was sharing. There were early miners as early back as early 2008, I think it was. I forget the exact date. And I think when Satoshi wrote that, it was maybe 2010 or 2011. So now, like having been in the space almost 10 years, in a few months, almost 10 years myself, I kind of understand why Satoshi said that because crypto is exhausting. It is exhausting. Um, there's no doubt. And, and, you know, I did a lot of work um, when we were writing crypto assets, trying to figure out who Satoshi was, um, you know, he, she, they group. Um, yeah. And I think that there's a lot, given what I'll just call Satoshi, they created, um, there's so much pressure um, if, if you're that individual or group of people that I like to think that they're still watching, they're still attuned to everything, but that they just knew um, for the sake of their own safety, they needed to step back, you know, from any public traceability or, or anything like that. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that it's exhausting. I mean, I've even, I've watched my relationship with Twitter kind of wax and wane over mm -hmm. time. Um, I really loved Twitter in like, you know, so first I was tweeting for ARC for one of their handles, and then I got to make my own handle, I think in 2016 it was. Um, but like the early, like early on, it was such a fun place. Um, and then, you know, this is 2014, 15, 16, and then 17, it was exhilarating. And that was probably peak Twitter. And then since then, um, and with the following that's grown, Twitter's become a lot more exhausting, right? There's um, because early on, it used to be a lot of interesting conversations and I could, um, I was more comfortable, I would say, being vulnerable on Twitter. Whereas at a certain, you know, once you get to a certain scale, um, people want to attack you, right? And so then being vulnerable is a lot harder if you know that you're gonna get attacked regardless of what you say. And that's just one example. Um, there's a lot of examples. It's there's the main kind of example the, though. It's, it's the reason that some of the people who are involved in at higher places very early on haven't rejoined the industry. Uh, well, they're kind of like enjoying their, their semi-retirement now. But right. I struggle with staying in the industry too, just because of the anxiety. Uh, but I, I just do a podcast now. You know, you talk about me being on the news and everything. Back then, that was my downfall. Uh, being that poster child, being on top, the early evangelizing, it was a double-edged sword. It was great for the early days of the industry and it helped what it helped. But at the same time, it hurt me really bad. Uh, and re right. rejoining this industry was uh, something that I was unsure what to do. But then I realized that I can't really you know, do anything else. Uh, what was that process like for you when you were um, rejoining and inserting yourself in the conversation again? I, uh, I look at my life and I will always look at my life under the context of before prison and after prison. Uh, that was such a fundamental shift in who I am as Charlie Shrem that for the rest of my life, I can tell you things that it was a before prison or after. And what you're talking about actually was the transition of the during. Before prison, it was all, I was, I, I, I would walk around like my shit didn't stink. I was the top of the, the most important person in the world. And I had 
400K in my bank account. And that was like so much money for a 21 year old. I had no debt. So I was just traveling around the world and I was speaking to to three different new, you know, news media day. And I was saying like, F you government, we're never going to going to work with you. And that was stupid because I was a child not realizing the bigger picture of this industry and how eventually we're all going to need to mesh and transition and work together. Uh, me doing that did a service, but it also did a disservice. And a lot of people in the community still till today won't talk to me, haven't forgiven me for those like early messages that I would preach. Uh, mm. But that didn't answer your question. What was that? Uh, it did in part. Yeah, it kind of did. But um, the 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 transition I think happened uh, when I was in when I was in prison because at that point I was trying to follow the industry. But I don't know if you remember this time. It was like crypto as an industry and as an experiment and as everything to me at least looked like it was on life support. Uh, when I got arrested, the price was at $1,000. And a year and a half later, when I actually went in, the price was sitting around 220 So it's just a slow drip leak. Imagine, right. how, like, you remember, so like the, 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 the trauma that the, the early, those, some of those people had, we had back then was just devastating, right? And so when I went in, I remember how many I had uh, less than, I, I, it was like maybe like a dozen or so Bitcoin. I remember uh, I've, I've already all, my financials have all been made like transparent many years ago because I've had to submit reports to the government and stuff like that. But um, so, you know, I was going in there, I was saying to myself, when you come out, this industry may not exist anymore. This thing may not exist anymore. People may not write you letters. No one's going to know who you are when you get out. Like I I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I figured out that I would just plan on it. Like as I'm getting out, and I didn't really get Bitcoin price updates. I would get people would mail me like letters and people would mail me their uh, white papers written by hand. And one guy tried to write me like something in code using a deck of cards. And I'm like, I'm too tired for this. And dude, I would get I would get so much mail. People would wonder, like, who is sending me all this mail? Like on mail day it was like, of course, Shrem's getting something today. You know, Shrem, like, of course, Shrem. So whatever, like that. That's but, heartwarming, um, at least. In yeah, the midst really of a nice. very humbling experience. I remember writing a letter to a Bitcoin ETM company based in like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, saying, hey, like, I don't know if you know me. I'm Charlie Shrem. I'm getting out of jail in a few months. Can I work for you? I'll just clean your bathrooms. And they were like, we don't have the budget to support you. I said, I don't need much money. I just my wife ended ended up getting me a job as a dishwasher. That was she was my girlfriend at the time. Now we're married. But uh, she got me the dishwasher that was at a restaurant attached to the winery where she worked out. And she worked to send me money when I was in prison. Because he needed wow. money. It was, yeah, it was crazy. But that's when like the transition to like me personally kind of happened, realizing that this industry is really, and this whole community, and this is really like, this is all I have. And this is what I'm going to be the best at for the rest of my life. But, and I want to leave off my rambling with, with a statement. No, it's, it's super fascinating, but go ahead. I'm going to, I want to say something about myself and then you tell me what you think. Um, but. Someone, someone just told me the other day, he said, I'm trying to remember the exact quote. He said, you need to figure out, you need to figure out. He's told me this, Charlie, Charlie, you need to figure out who you are outside of crypto in order to really understand like who you are as a person inside of it. Because my whole adult life has been Bitcoin. I found out a bit in the years from high school to college. Right. So, uh, I don't have a life outside of this. Mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking back and I'm saying, 
do you think that's necessary? Do I have to go and try to like search and be that wandering kind of like, you know, the wandering Jew again and figure out what I want to mm-hmm. do? Do you feel that? Because you're a largely adult working life. You know, you started off as the blo- uh, blockchain projects lead at ARC and then you went into now you're the uh, partner at, at Placeholder VC. And if people go right. to placeholder.vc, they'll see you're involved in and invested in, in dozens of, of projects that everyone knows about. Right. That's a really deep question. Um, I would say even if we step outside of crypto, um, so I remember I um, when I was 20, I did my first 10 day of Vipassana sit, which is a 10 day silent meditation um, where you're only allowed to talk to the assistant teachers if you have questions and there's like a one hour window in the middle of the day where you can wait in line to talk to people. And um, that was at a difficult time in my life. I had um, broken my collarbone snowboarding. My room had flooded. I had um, broken up with my girlfriend of a year and a half. Um, I was like, yeah, my mind was a mess. Um, And I had uh, gone to this Vipassana retreat just to a friend had told me, you know, if you want to just calm your mind, um, go to this place. And for the first three days, you'll just focus on the sensation here. And I was like, that's great. If I could just focus on that sensation and leave all other thoughts behind, that would be amazing. Um, but one of the things that first it taught me um, was that vacuum, that void of all external things, um, really, it, it, it meant that everything that I thought I was kind of disappeared, crumbled. And um, it led to the question of, well, what does remain? And so um, asking very similar questions to what you're asking now. Um, And it's been 10 years of rebuilding from that experience. And I've done a number of sits since, none as impactful as that first one. Oh, that sounds amazing. Where where I am, I highly recommend them if if you can find the time and they're free and it's an amazing organization. Um, But where I find myself now is really the only thing that I can trust um, is the sense of flow. And if I'm getting energy from an activity um, that is just flowing because I'm so enthused and focused and exhilarated by what it is. And so I tend to follow those things. Um, So like surfing is a big one, probably the biggest one in my life that gives me that. Um, Glass blowing is is another one. And thinking about- That sounds like a great hobby. I need to do that. Glass flowing from um, high school. It's a random thing. Is but, it? Um, okay. No, no, keep going. And and so just to wrap with, with this idea of crypto, you know, thinking about crypto, writing about crypto, um, helping our entrepreneurs, all of that gives me flow. And so I trust that and I follow that and I do that. Um, but I have worked to develop a grounding outside of crypto because exactly what we were talking about prior you know, it's not just the social components of crypto that are stressful. It's also the security components, right? Like constant. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've had yeah. um, too many to really remember at this point, security scares or potential breaches of, you know, being targeted. Um, it's also this constant evolution where, uh, um, you know, you can think you've invested in the bee's knees technology and six months later, something is coming out that's going to obviate it. And so there are all these kind of neuroses that I would say require a grounding, at least to live healthily um, on a day-to-day basis outside of crypto. 
So if I understand you correctly, the the intuition of of like flow that and that largely is like an unquantifiable uh, intuition uh, is something that you use on a daily basis. And I have to tell you, uh, you're one of the only people outside of my family that I've spoken to of this uh, about. And I'm happy the listeners can can hear about this and, and hopefully learn from it. But uh, my mother-in-law, she taught me and she's a very big believer. I know out of all people, right, of going with the flow. She nails it down. It's it's on every poster in her room. Her dog, her dog's name is Flow. F-L-O-W. Flow girl. Just because of this. And I can't tell you how many deals that I am so happy that I just didn't. You don't feel right. And it doesn't flow. And then you have other yeah. deals that sometimes you can't put a picture or a pin on why it's supposed to happen, but it's flowing. And if it flows, mm -hmm. it goes. And you have to follow the flow sometimes. And a lot of people say it's like hocus pocus and magic. But really, 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 if you look at flow, it, all it is is a sub, our subconscious mind not explaining to us why it's going towards one direction over another. And that's what that is. It's, it's our brains basically knowing what an answer should be or which direction should go, but it's not able to bring it to our conscious mind. And that's the flow. It's from your experiences. It's from your education and it's from intuition. And sometimes it's the harder decision is the one that's going to flow because your conscious mind doesn't want to make difficult decisions, but you know, your subconscious knows. Do you think right. you agree with that? I, I, I really like that articulation of it. Um, to layer in more, it's, it's kind of like the conscious mind thinks largely through words um, and words are an approximation of things, but it's not um, the entirety of thing. Like a word, um, it's trying to translate this, mm. this kind of um, these ineffable sensations and the firing of neurons. And so we approximate with words, but it's never the exact thing. And so um, that subconscious that you're talking about or yeah. that feeling in, in your gut or in your heart or, you know, these different things that indicate a sense of flow or a lack of flow. Those are, if you tune into them, um, deeper, truer uh, sensations and, and places of processing. Now, it's hard in such a rational society where we think, oh, you know, everything has to be logical or I have to have rational reasons for this or, you know, what's the career path here? It doesn't, the two don't line up. Um, and so I think it requires some um, conditioning yourself, you know, outside the norms of what is mainstream culture um, to kind of tap into the flow. But certainly the more you do it, the more you become attuned to, okay, this is giving me energy. I'm feeding off of this. Therefore, I'm going to be happier and do a better job of this rather than this other thing that my mind is trying to tell me is the logical thing to do. But that, you know, my body, my spirit is like, no, like, you know, I have no energy to do that. I'm really excited when I get to talk about projects and companies that have been around since the early days of crypto and supporting those projects. In many parts of the world, banking services simply haven't advanced at the same rate as the adoptions of smartphones and the internet. Uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, it's they're skipping entire financial services over, they're skipping people over, and they're not even building out that infrastructure until cryptocurrency. We all know this, we've been hearing about it for so long. Electronium, a company based in the UK, decided to build an entire ecosystem based off of financial inclusion, empowering people, getting them involved, not just by working and by earning, but also by spending and being part of that community. 
AnyTask.com is a company that's powered by Electronium, over half a million users, and you have the ability to do all these freelance projects, earn money, earn their tokens, and not only just earn ETN, but also be able to spend it on all these different things. What's what's crazy is that, and what's crazy good is that it's a, any task is attracting not just crypto people, but actual talented freelancers that are willing to take ETN in return for doing all this work. It, it's literally created this whole uh, ecosystem. And the thing is, it's not been just like a new novel idea. It's been around for a while. They're doing it. They're growing every single day. They're doing uh, millions of dollars in transactions. You got thousands and thousands of different people on the platform offering different services. And you should go check it out. It's it's so cool. The staff are great. The people are great. Everyone on the platform is so cool. Uh, according to ETN Everywhere, their official merchant directory, uh, ETN can be spent in over, I think it's 2,000 physical locations and online locations worldwide. You're talking about uh, in 140 countries, mobile airtime, um, shops, TVs, all these different things, not just being able to spend it. And so check them out, Electronium anytasks.com support my sponsors they're so cool and i'm excited for you guys to check it out it's uh it's such a crazy perception and it's i say crazy because uh what essentially i feel like you're saying or what i'm thinking as you're talking is that our brains have a limited have a, our bodies or our brains have a limiting factor and that is that we can think and we could talk sorry not that we think we could talk and we could think but those are inefficient in a way because our brain uses Okay, so what I what I've learned recently is our brains. You can burn more calories by some by brain power than you can uh, powerlifting that day and running over a bridge. Like your brain well, uses more energy. If you get a whoop, I got a whoop, and I sit, you sit on a chair all day, which I don't do. But if you sat and you did like playing chess or something that was like so mentally draining, recording a podcast or something, I'll burn more calories right now than I will working out sometimes. Our brains use all this energy and all this power, but our ability to talk and to sometimes try to like think or not think as well, like limits that. And we're talking about the flow. Um, mm -hmm. I want to transition though from that into uh, some things that you do really well. Uh, I want to bring up the article. You, you, you write really well. And that is kind of what we're talking about, taking a lot of this thinking and putting it down into words to help other people understand uh, what you've worked out. One of one of the the articles that I liked, and I'm, I'll just bring it up here, is while I'm not personally like involved in Zcash much, I've always followed it. But you wrote your Zcash thesis, and Zcash just had their first having on November seventeenth. But I felt like the main point of the article was that you were saying that the crypto community we have things backwards, we have privacy backwards. We focus on making transactions private, but not making sure like assets are private. Can you explain to the listeners what you mean by that and why, what you mean by we're like doing it backwards? Sure. So, you know, if you think about your um, typical mixer approach um, on Bitcoin or Ethereum, you have a transparent pseudonymous address where you store your assets. You send a transaction to a mixer um, to anonymize the assets. Um, but then you return those assets that have been anonymized through a transaction back to a transparent address. Um, and the thinking is, oh, well, I took this action. I've anonymized myself. I'm good. Um, but the two addresses, the one at the start and the one after, 
you know, there's still yeah. a trail that's traceable. Um, and it is true that it requires work, but the point of the Zcash thesis is it is a more efficient process and at least using ZK snarks, um, a more secure process to always have, um, you know, so in Zcash it would be using Z addresses, but yeah. to have shielded addresses and then from a shielded place where there's perfect anonymity, you can, interestingly enough, transact openly if you wanted um, and save costs in, in that transaction. You can also transact anonymously. And then the key, again, is that you're returning to an anonymous address. And so it's just highlighting for people. So um, what, what is then public? Like what, what would people see in that respect? And then why aren't, why isn't all of Zcash like this? Why isn't, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. So you would see the transaction, but you wouldn't know the the contents. Well, so um, a block and, explorer would just show transactions, hash transactions, hash like that. Right. And 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 you wouldn't you wouldn't know the contents. Um, now Zcash, you know, you can have shielded or non-shielded, and really the the distinction here is like privacy is the choice of anonymity. In some situations. Um, you may want anonymity. In other situations, you may not need it. And so I think Zcash has designed a really elegant um, crypto money that is you know, good for all users, depending on what they're looking for. Um, it's not Monero, right? Where Monero is, is, is anonymous by default all the time because Zcash is more thinking about the businesses and the average users. So let's take a business, right? Um, JP Morgan may not want to reveal that they're wiring $10 million to XYZ Bank. Um, and so they might choose to use a shielded transaction mm. um, where they're using the Zcash network. And then there's an extra um, wrinkle here, which is uh, Zcash has viewing keys, where um, JP Morgan could actually give a viewing key to a regulator if a regulator needs to see that transaction. Um, so then the regulator gets all the information, JP Morgan doesn't get in trouble, but then for business purposes, all of JP Morgan's competitors can't see what happened. I mean, um, theoretically, and, so if we did something like this on, on Bitcoin, or if like you'd adopt something like this, how would it be reverse compatible with all the old transactions? And I think if that could be figured out, you'd be able to have some crazier and do it over a soft fork instead of a hard fork. And then really yeah. the last, the last point of that though is wouldn't it piss off governments more by that method as opposed to like having it where you can see everything except for what is being transacted so, so all the addresses and all everything else is still public like on the bitcoin blockchain but the transaction itself like yeah i want more privacy however at the same time i don't want you know having crypto seen as not a hostile thing has been very hard to to get that you know yeah across the world well, I think we're at placeholder. We're generally thinking about what is best for the individual, what is best for the human, and what optimizes for their rights and their needs. Um, and so, when we look at Zcash, we see something that has really empowered um, the individual, um, has created the foundation for a fungible private crypto money, um, and then has things like the viewing key. Um, should a regulator really want to know the contents of a transaction? where you can reveal that that key to prove what the contents of the transaction were. And so, you know, it's accounted for um, a number of different stakeholders in, in the ecosystem. I'm sure, you know, if you gave governments the choice, 
they would want full um, yeah, information on all things all the time. But, you know, there's a balance between the individual and uh, the powers that be. Now uh, we're on the cusp of Ethereum 2. Um, I'm not sure. Is the, is the contract fully, is the staking contract fully funded? I haven't checked. I think it needs. It to- is. It is. Yeah. So it's, it's overfunded at this point. So Ethereum so 2 we're is. We're going live tomorrow. It's, it's such a big news and Ethereum is, is on its way and it's always been one of the best. Uh, it was great. Ethereum will always be. I'll, I'll talk to children one day when I'm an old man and I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> let me tell you something about Ethereum. The, if you looked at the people who, who came up, you look, there's like a famous picture of all the people in the Miami house. You look at those people. These were like misfits and derelicts and people who like all fell out of high school and children. And it just goes to show you like you put brilliant people together and people who really want to change the world. I mean, uh, you can come up with something like Ethereum and, and I don't know whatever your views on COVID or politics or blah, blah, blah. But but the fact that we've like basically saved humanity by coming out with this vaccine is nothing short of a miracle. Whether or not you want to take it, you have to like agree that it wouldn't have even come as fast if we didn't live in a capitalistic world. That's that's first. That's that's my, my, my first point here. But it's just it's just kind of crazy. You know, we can come up with Ethereum and Ethereum, too. Do you think that like out of all the major chains that are growing so rapidly, like uh, Polkadot and some of the other ones, uh, has Ethereum reached that like m- that like what's the word when like that Bitcoin has the escape word velocity. escape velocity? I personally think that this year Ethereum did get that escape velocity now, but there's still a lot of like kind of like people still look at Ethereum's code base and and how it it came to be as like the best of what we have now. How can mm. Ethereum change its perception on that? That's that's a tough one because I think Ethereum its whole life has had to fight a war of propaganda against yes. Bitcoin maximalists. And so it's not wholly Ethereum um, that is in charge of its perception, right? And and I actually wanted to ask you about what your experience was like going back in time from Bitcoin to when Ethereum came on the scene and that transition. But let's let's come back to that because if we go back to January 2014, right, when Ethereum gets announced at the Miami Bitcoin conference, um, like Bitcoin is is the thing. There's true altcoins at that time, just you know, small forks and small differences um, from Bitcoin. But like Bitcoin is the thing. It controls the narrative. It controls the press. It controls the social. All of that that stuff. Um, and that has always you know been the case. And so as Ethereum has tried to rise, it's kind of like it's mm-hmm. constantly been getting bullied by its big brother. Or um, I, I actually think of Bitcoin as the mother of the whole blockchain space, right? And so in a way it's been getting bullied by its mother, um, which is a horrible thing. And so um, there's a whole bunch of propaganda and I actually kind of took on this war socially in 2018 and 2019. In 2016 and 17, I was less outspoken, um, like an advocate for you know both Bitcoin and Ethereum and um, anything that's truly innovating with a quality team. Um, but I was really like associated as the Bitcoin analyst that you know covered Bitcoin at Arc. Um, but then in 2018 and 19, when I saw the duress that ETH was under, um, the price while the community was continuing to build, and there were 
all these cool things coming out. And then I was just seeing Maximalist, yeah. you know, just bash Ethereum. Um, I just, at a certain point, I really couldn't, um, it wasn't fair. Like it, it just, it wasn't truthful. It wasn't fair. And so um, went out to what educate. What are the biggest myths though? Not like what are the, but what's like the biggest, uh, well, I'll ask you that after. Continue, please continue the story. Well, well, so I guess just to conclude, um, you know, now people associate me more with Ethereum than with Bitcoin. And I would say, you know, I've got affinities for both in my heart. I've got um, just being the human that I am. It's hard to embrace a community that can be, and, and not all of Bitcoin is like this. There are like a few outspoken characters um, socially that are quite toxic. Um, yeah. And so, you know, over time, I have come to um, spend more time on Ethereum really just because that's where more things are being built. Um, if, if, I, if I look at like what's coming out um, in terms of decentralized applications, I see a lot more and just placeholder the, the organic deal flow we get, a lot more of it is built on Ethereum that does not at all um, discount Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is, is a different sure. thing. I, I really think of Bitcoin as a digital yeah, it's gold. Okay that, to, everything that you're saying is not like, it's okay to be pro Ethereum and, and pro Bitcoin at the same time, yes. this, this maximalism movement. And I know that I think that's what you wanted to ask me really started, uh, as an anti-Ethereum movement. So Bitcoin maximalism never, I never, I didn't even hear that term until like I was mm. out of prison at this point and Ethereum had started before I was even inside. Uh, but I, you know, early on in the Bitcoin talk forums or forum.bitcoin.org or whatever, these were the, it was, there was no such thing as Bitcoin maximalism. Mm. Charlie Lee was the the biggest, you know, when Litecoin came out, it was just going to be seen as uh, Bitcoin's little brother. And it was, there was no hostility toward, there was no hostility. Right, more of a celebration. Uh, Pure coin, feather coin. When you wanted to launch a cool coin, that was awesome. Uh, and I never really understood until very recently why Ethereum was seen as like this, uh, uh, crypto killer, uh, not Bitcoin killer. And unfortunately there's blame on both sides because, uh, Vitalik was, largely back then the only person writing about Ethereum, except for other people in the forums. Vitalik was the writer and he was a Bitcoin magazine writer writing on, now starting this Ethereum thing. And the story in the history will, you know, will, it's, it's kind of muddled on, apparently uh, Vitalik actually wanted to build Ethereum on Bitcoin and a lot of Bitcoin people were against it. That doesn't really matter. But at the end of the day, Ethereum should never have been seen as a, uh, uh, a negative. And so right. because that happened, that started this whole idea of maximalism in crypto. Mm. So people who are mm. claiming to be maximalisms for life are liars because it never existed until like 2014 or 2015 or even 2016. Right. That right. whole term never really, never really was a thing. By the way, I found the Sarasota School of Glass and I'm going to go take glass blowing. I think I'm going to start awesome. glass blowing class. Do it, Charlie. No, I'm really it's excited about it. I really want to do it. That glass blowing is a great art form for flow. Um, you know, you've got a material that's above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Can't wait. I'm so excited. It's kind of like honey that you're spooling on the, the end of this, you know, about six foot metal pipe. Um, and you're working with it with air and tools and gravity. Um, and you, it commands your attention, your attention. You can't, you know, you can't pause for a moment or, and go yeah. look at the phone or, you know, and, and those are the best states of flow. Um, so, you know, with Ethereum, 
I think there's some insecurity there too um, from some of the most toxic maximalists um, where in a way, like I think they would be better off embracing how awesome Bitcoin is for the things that it's awesome for and embracing Ethereum for how awesome the things Ethereum is awesome for um, versus like basically saying it's not Bitcoin, so it's a shit coin. Um, it's just such a narrow kind of insecure worldview that um, is, you know, very transparently that if you look at the nature of the conversation. Um, and now I think you, you're asking, what are some of the biggest myths about Ethereum? Well, one is about to be busted, um, which is ETH2 will never ship. Um, that's going to be But I'm not tomorrow. sold on proof of stake, um, by the way. It's like... That's, that's fine. I'm really not. But that's another, that's another conversation for another podcast. I need to just okay. do like a proof of stake series and have everyone come on and try to convince me that proof of stake is, uh, but that's another conversation. Tune okay. in for the proof of stake series where everyone tries to sell me on proof of stake. That would be a good one. I encourage you to do it. Um, I, you know, there was recently this supply gate thing, um, which is again, to me, just propaganda. Like there are, um, it, it really came from different, clients um accounting for uh supply and what had been that. Yeah. burned that was in, in, in slightly different ways yeah. and so there were slight discrepancies um, but the fact that between... ethereum doesn't have a supply or whatever is where that stems from or does or it does or it wasn't I it does have a supply it's just um there are you know depending on how you account for all of the transactions through ethereum's history going back to summer of 2015 you will get you know, slightly different amounts, but there's, it's a de minimis discrepancy and we know what ongoing inflation is. So like the, the way I see it, we know the things that are important and there are um, small discrepancies placed based on how different clients are accounting for the total supply. And, you know, if you're coming from a Bitcoin value set, then, you know, maybe that's really upsetting for you. Um, if you're coming from a, you know, this is a technology system where different people yeah, that's how you um, look get, at it. get yeah. to account for um, these systems in slightly different ways, then it's okay. Um, there are other, um, you know, myths. I think maybe the, the deepest myth that won't die is that Ethereum is a scam. Um, but if I go back and- anything's a scam. I'm a yeah. scam to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so like, if you go back in time, I think they raised around $18 million. Um, and now that was in BTC, so that's worth more now. But at, at the time, at the strike of BTC, they raised $18 million to build what is Ethereum today. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, that was an incredibly capital efficient exercise um, that, that enabled human innovation, innovation. So I feel like because all of for, the myths be, and are And it's debunkable. funny that you say that uh, because I remember uh, asking... Uh, Charles Hodgkinson, why, you know, like, how did you guys build and ship this with such a little amount of money so efficiently, you know? And he said, simply because we were building it to ship. And if we had to use that money to just for ramen packets to stretch it as much, that's what we had to do because this is what we had to ship and we needed to ship something or the future. I think he said like the future of like, it wasn't Charles actually who said this, it was just someone else. Uh, but he said that, this was someone else who said that the future of uh, their livelihood or their 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 who they themselves are 
rests on shipping this. They're they're, and I still agree with that. Uh, to be yeah, you know, I want to like start. A, I want to write a book, and and I oh, I really really do, but I also don't because for a few reasons. But at the same time, if I were to write a book, I think I would start off the book with, uh, I would start off the book something like this and say like, most authors, uh, almost every author who's ever written a book starts this story, starts writing this story when they realize that they want to write a book uh, or when they realize that what they're writing needs to be written down. And so this story actually started for me 10 years ago because when I knew, when I got into Bitcoin, I knew that this was something that is the future and is my future and I started writing that book mentally in my head almost 10 years ago. And that's how I'm going to start the book, because it's true. I, I vividly remember memories. I vividly remember things saying to myself, mental note this, Charlie, this needs to go. So things about eight, nine years ago. I remember the, mm -hmm. some crazy stuff. Uh, really, really, really crazy stuff. But what is exciting you like right now? What are you working on this week? This week? Well, we're, there's, there's kind of constant... Um, deal flow where placeholders always considering new investment opportunities. But then a large amount of my work is um, helping the existing portfolio networks on all the different things um, that, that arise. And, um, you know, the portfolio is around 25 different networks now. And so there's always a fire somewhere, you know, even though these are, these are liquid um, and sometimes highly valued networks. Um, a lot of them are still, you know, scaling operations and facing problems that startups face and um, quality VCs can be there as a friendly sounding board to help teams through different trying, trying times. And so that's a lot of what I do. Um, really quick on the book, if you do write the book, um, just remember, this was really helpful for me. Writing a book is a race against your own self-doubt. Um, there's so much doubt in the process of constructing something that long. Um, and, you know, you just have to get it to a place where you can hit send, hit publish and working with an editor. Who published um, to your help book you. and edit, edited it? So um, Jack and I worked with McGraw-Hill and then we hired a outside editor by the name of Karen Lacey, who's really nice. great. Um, and we're actually working on another book right now um which is looking like it's going to be a fiction um oh cool and what was and the name of your first book for the listeners crypto assets the innovative investor's guide to bitcoin and beyond um so that was a non-fiction you know it's kind of a a technical manual um and it, it's it's written for you know someone um that has some priors in the technology and financial yeah. world um i would say you know if you if you had no experience in the technology or financial world, if you read it and like took your time to understand each new word that you don't um, understand to to start, then um, it's it's written to be comprehensible in that way. But it's really like a a manual and something that people go back to reference at different points in time. And we were debating. I would love to do um, a fiction book. My my book as fiction. This way, I can write it more of a story. Then I can. You could write your story, man. That's what I, I would do. I would write my story, but I would do it as as I don't know. Do you can you write your own story, but do it as a fiction book? Or do, is that weird? I don't know how people do. I don't. I just don't. I've never wrote a book before. I don't know. 
there's there's no rules. Um, so, so so long as you write something that's engaging that people keep turning the pages on, um, that's what makes a good book. I would uh, I would want to work with a publisher not for the financial reasons. In fact, I it's not something that I would even try to make money on. But I would want to work with a publisher just solely for distribution and for the long longevity of distribution, knowing longevity, longevity of distribution. And at the same time, knowing that a a, a party who has a vested interest in this book is there, but at the same time also has a vested interest in getting the book right, because then someone can come and sue them if they're they're not accurate. So it's like almost you need like some, like someone to like be there and make sure to fact check and everything. Well, we can, we can take that one offline and, um, I'm exploring the nonfiction or the the fiction. I I have to give um, the first look to McGraw Hill, but they're, you know, yeah. generally not not a publisher of fiction books. And so, I'm going to be going back into the market again to find another publisher. And there's a whole world of you know you get agents that help you get a publisher and all that. Yeah. Um, so so we can have that conversation offline. You help me write my book because um, I've always wanted to do it with a with a. a um... A go- not a ghostwriter, but like someone else in the industry who's been involved in everything that I'm not involved in. So you can complete that picture. Uh, and then Anderson Cooper, when I was doing 60 Minutes, introduced me to his agent and said, when you're ready to write the book, call me. And, I, and I talked to the agent. So I just got to like do the book. That's big time. I know. That's big this, time. His agent is like invented the agency, the, in, the concept of like writer's agent. Like he he's like the OG of, right. of the writing world. But I don't want to give too much away now. I mean, the listeners are like, getting all this information so <laughs> they're getting excited already i know hey chris um, thank you so much though for coming on this show i really i really do appreciate it and this has been such a a wonderful conversation we went over our time but i don't even care well thank you for having me charlie um it's it's great to converse with you and i'm glad you're thinking of all these different things thank you